with me to the book of Romans in chapter 3 as we continue our verse by verse study of this book. Our focus this morning is Romans 3 verse 11, but we will begin reading in verse 9. Uh, Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. Uh, If you would like to use one of the Bibles in the seats in front of you, you're welcome to do so. Uh, You'll find this passage beginning on page 940 in those Bibles. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 9, this is the Word of God. And so let's give it our attention. Verse 9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. In these verses, Paul is teaching us about the depravity of man. He is building up to the great, glorious news of the gospel He's preparing us for that great, glorious news of the gospel. But right now, his focus is on showing us the sinfulness of all humanity and why all people everywhere need the gospel. There are two main doctrines in these verses. There is the universality of sin. The fact that sin is universal, that all people are sinners. There are non-righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. It's the universality of sin. But then also in these verses, Paul is teaching us this doctrine that theologians call total depravity. He is using Old Testament text after Old Testament text to show that this doctrine is not some new doctrine, but one that has been taught in the Old Testament. And total depravity simply means that there is no part of our lives that is not touched and tainted by sin. You can see these verses follow a progression. Uh, Last week we looked at verse 10, uh, the quote, none is righteous, no, not one. And that dealt with who we are. Right? We are not righteous in our hearts, at the core of our being, in our very souls. We are unrighteous. Human beings are not basically good. Human beings are basically wicked. We are devoid of righteousness in our souls. And then what follows in verse 11 is that this wickedness at the core of who we are affects our minds so that our minds do not understand the things of God. This wickedness affects our wills so that we do not seek after God. Remember, we're not talking about Christians here. Right? Salvation is not yet in view. We're simply talking about all human beings apart from the saving work of God, who we naturally are. Verse 10, we are unrighteous. That's who we are. Verse 11, that unrighteousness affects our minds and it affects our wills. Verse 12, it affects our actions. It affects our deeds. Verses 13 and 14, it affects our mouths, our tongues, the words that we speak. 
verses 15, 16, and 17. This unrighteousness affects our steps, the paths that we take, a propensity towards violence. And then verse 18 sums it all up, getting to the very heart of the issue, namely that there is no fear of God before the eyes of natural man. These are not pleasant verses, but they are good for us. These verses are like the pill that our doctor gives us in which the taste is unpleasant, but we trust our doctor and we hold our nose and we swallow the pill because we know that it's good for us. God wants us to know these unpleasant things about ourselves so that we will better see the great grace of Him given to us in Jesus Christ. Salvation is so much sweeter when you understand the depths of our own sinfulness. Today our focus is verse 11. With each statement, we're asking the same three questions. One, where did this quote come from? Two, what does it mean? Three, what are some implications? So for each one of these quotes, those are the three questions we're asking. Where did it come from? What does it mean? What are some implications for us? Are you ready to jump in? No? We can go home if you'd rather do that, but I think we ought to jump in. You ready? All right, let's go. No one understands. No one understands. Where does that come from? The Old Testament passage that Paul is quoting here is Psalm 14, 2. Psalm 14, verse 2. He's not quoting it word for word. But he is quoting its meaning. Let me read for you Psalm 14.2 and let you see that this is where Paul is coming from. Psalm 14.2 says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see, are there any who understand, any who seek after God? Are there any who understand? Are there any who seek after God? And the idea in Psalm 14 is that the eyes of God are searching the earth, the whole earth, for any man, any woman who understands the things of God. Any man or any woman that is truly seeking God. And the unspoken implication is that he finds no one. He finds no one. The teaching of Psalm 14.2 is that there are none to be found who understand the things of God, who seek after God. And so here in Romans 3, Paul is reminding us of that passage that no one understands, that no one seeks for God. Alright, if that's where it comes from, what does it mean? What does it mean that no one understands? Well, I think the answer to that is that man, by nature does not understand God and therefore man's understanding of everything else is flawed. When it says no one understands, it means no one understands God and because no one understands God, no one understands this world that we live in. And I don't mean that no one has a full understanding of God. No, I mean that natural man does not have even a basic understanding of God. And without that basic understanding of who God is, everything else is folly and confusion. Friends, we live in a a day of knowledge. 
Right? There is more knowledge available today than there has ever been before. I, I do not cease to be amazed by how much some people know about some things that I have no clue about. Some of you in this room have so much knowledge about your specialties or about your hobbies or about the thing that you do in your career that I wouldn't know the basics of that subject. When I hear a mathematician speak about complex theorems, when I hear a scientist talk about the details of their particular field, it's easy to be amazed by the knowledge that human beings have accumulated. We today know more about our world than any other generation before us. But friends, apart from the knowledge of God, our understanding of everything else will always be flawed. It will always be fundamentally and fatally flawed. We may know many, many things about this universe, but if we don't see this universe as God's universe, we do not see it rightly. We know more about ourselves than any other generation in history. Many of you in here work at the hospital or in a medical field and you could testify about how far we've come in understanding certain diseases and certain aspects of the human body and how to treat certain ailments. I don't think there's a person in this room that would rather have a 16th century doctor treating them than a 21st century doctor treating them. We've come a long ways. There has never been a time when human beings could know more about themselves than today. We have psychologists who have delved deep into the workings of the human mind. We have sociologists who can tell us about human patterns and how people tend to act in certain situations and a variety of cultures. We know so much about ourselves. But apart from the knowledge of God, all our knowledge concerning ourselves is fundamentally flawed. If we do not understand God and that we were created in the image of God for the explicit purposes of God given in Genesis 2, that we exist for the glory of God, if our understanding of ourselves is divorced from understanding God, having a basic understanding of who He is and why He created us, our understanding of ourselves is flawed. God is the center of all things. All things are from God. All things are through God. All things are for God. Therefore, if you fail to understand God, you fail to understand reality. To understand it rightly. What has Paul already told us about human understanding? Look back at Romans 1, verse 19. Romans 1, verse 19. Talking about all humanity, the entire human race, Paul says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So according to Paul, all people, by nature, understand that there is a God. 
All people, by nature, understand that He is eternal and that He has divine attributes. All people, by nature, understand that there is a God, that He is holy, that He loves what is good, that He hates what is evil. But if all people have clearly perceived this truth, why does Paul go on to say that we don't understand? That we don't see things aright? Why do we live in folly rather than understanding? The answer is back in verse 18. Romans 1.18. You see it? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, what? Suppress the truth. You see, folks, the problem is not first and foremost our brains. Our hearts don't want to believe that there is a God to whom we must give an account. Our hearts are under the dominion of sin. The natural human heart loves sin. The natural human heart loves being prideful, loves being selfish, loves indulging in earthly pleasures. And this truth that we clearly perceive that there is a God to whom we must give an account, that is an affront to our hearts. Our hearts do not like that. That makes us afraid. That makes us ashamed. And so our hearts affect our minds, causing our minds to suppress the truth. Our understanding becomes darkened. We deny what we know deep down to be true. Look at verse 21. Chapter 1. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God, or give thanks to Him, but they became... What? They became futile, futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Why do we not, why does natural man not see things rightly? Why does natural man not understand the things of God? It is because the things of God are contrary to what we want. The things of God convict us of our sin, expose our wickedness and our helplessness, and we don't want that. Like a person with post-traumatic stress disorder, how they may utterly block some dreadful memory from their mind. They don't want to think about it. Their, their, their very nature suppresses that event that happened so that they cannot even remember it though it haunts their dreams. In the same way, the natural human heart suppresses the truths about God, tries to block the truths about God so that I can live happily in sin and not be ashamed, not live in fear of a future day of accounting. What this means is that people will not naturally accept the gospel. You hear me, church? The gospel begins with the bad news of our sinfulness and God's holiness. The gospel begins with the news of the holy God to whom we must give an account. 
It continues with the news of how God became a man, how God is three in one, and how God the Father poured out His wrath against sin upon His Son on the cross. The Gospel is all about how Jesus bore the wrath of God against sin for any and all who would admit what none of us want to admit by nature. That we are broken and twisted and helpless. The message of the gospel is offensive to the prideful human heart. It is offensive to the human mind that is trying to suppress the truth and block out the truth. Paul teaches us this in detail in 1 Corinthians 1. I'm not going to study it now. We'll study it another time. But we could spend many sermons listening to Paul unpack how the gospel is foolishness to the natural human heart. Let me just quote one verse. 1 Corinthians 1.18 For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Isn't it amazing how the message that saves souls, the message that brings us to God, the message that brings us into all the glorious blessings of God is the one message that the human heart hates. What are some implications? What are some implications? I'm just going to mention two. One, there will always be a temptation to change the gospel in order to help people understand. No one understands the things of God. No one understands these truths. Well, maybe if we change the truths, they'll understand. Apart from the saving work of the Spirit of God, people will not grasp the true gospel message. They may understand it logically in their heads, but it will always be folly to them. They will reject it. They will often mock it. It is the Spirit of God who humbles our hearts and causes our minds to stop fighting and to start admitting that yes, there is a holy God to whom I must give an account and I am helpless before Him. I need Jesus. Only the Spirit of God can cause our hearts to soften so that our minds will begin to accept the gospel as wisdom and not folly. So often when you and I present the gospel, we should expect that we will be received with rejection. We will be received at times with mockery. We will be received at times with laughter or even worse for many of us, is when they look upon us in pity. Those poor people believing those things. Those poor old-fashioned backwoods Christians still holding on to those beliefs from those days before we were enlightened. That's what we can often expect. Don't be surprised by that. The Bible tells you ahead of time. That's what you can expect. And because our message is foolishness to this world of people, who do not understand a constant temptation, a constant temptation for Christians is the temptation to adjust the gospel so that it will be more acceptable. The temptation to adjust it, to change it, to modify it. We're tempted to trade in the true gospel for a a self-esteem gospel 
that says that people aren't criminals against God. No, we're victims. We're victims of our own sin. We're tempted to trade in the true gospel for a, a works gospel of just pray this prayer, just walk to this aisle, just get your name on a membership roll. We're tempted to trade in the true gospel for a social gospel that says Jesus came to teach us to be nice to people. We're tempted to trade in the true gospel for a prosperity gospel that says if you trust God, He will make you healthy and wealthy in this life. There are so many false gospels that people are preaching today and often it is because we just want our message to be accepted. The natural man does not understand and will not accept the gospel. This is a temptation we must avoid because these gospels do not save. The only gospel that saves is the authentic gospel of a holy God, of a sinful man, of Christ as dying on the cross, absorbing the wrath of God for sinners rising again, coming again, saving all who will repent and turn from their sins and believe on Him. And you want to know the quickest way to spot a false gospel? Repentance is the first thing that goes. The call for a changed life. The call to deny self, to take up your cross, to give up sin. It's the first thing to go because natural human hearts don't like that part of the gospel. Friends, don't ever let any man have this pulpit who preaches any other gospel than the gospel of Christ crucified for sinners. Okay? Second implication. Second implication. Our gospel presentations must be accompanied by prayer. Our gospel presentations must be accompanied by prayer. The Holy Spirit is the only one that can cause a natural man or woman to understand. It is the Holy Spirit who gives illumination. It is the Holy Spirit that makes the light bulb turn on so that instead of saying, I get it, but that's foolishness, instead the person says, I get it, and it's the wisdom of God. It's the power of God for salvation. This means that when we are sharing the Gospel with others, and I hope we are, when we are sharing the Gospel with others, we should be much in prayer that the Spirit would come and grant real understanding. This happens through the Gospel. We, we can't sit back and say, well, natural people don't understand the Gospel, so I'm going to wait for the Spirit to call somebody to understand, and then I'll go to them with the Gospel. That won't work. <laughs> right? The way the Spirit gives understanding is through the message of the Gospel being shared. And so we must be sharing. But as we're sharing the Gospel, we must be praying. And we must be crying out to God saying, Will you give understanding? A farmer puts his seed in the ground. A farmer has no power to make a seed germinate. A farmer has no power to make a plant grow. A farmer has no power to make the sun shine or the rain fall. 
The farmer does his work all the while trusting that God will bless it and make it fruitful. That is how we must do evangelism. We're going to share the gospel. But while we're sharing, we're praying, God, you must do all the real work. You've got to make this seed germinate. You've got to make this plant grow. You've got to make fruit come. A farmer who spends his day planting seeds and then comes back to his house and doesn't pray for God to bless it is a poor farmer. He's presuming that there will be no famine. We ought to be full of prayer as we share the gospel. All right, let's move to the next statement. That's no one understands. We're going to do just one more. Verse 11, no one seeks for God. No one seeks for God. Where does it come from? It comes from the same place as the last one. Psalm 14, 2. It's that earlier statement, right? The eyes of the Lord are searching the whole earth. Are there any who are seeking God? And He finds none. It comes from Psalm 14, 2. What does it mean? What does it mean that no one seeks for God? All people everywhere perceive that God exists and that He is holy and that we must give an account to Him. All people everywhere perceive their own sinfulness. The right response to this would be to seek after God like crazy. If our minds were functioning anything close to normal, everybody would be pursuing God with all their might, saying, God, I'm in trouble. Be merciful to me, a sinner. And that's exactly what mankind does not do. The one rational thing to do, to throw yourself at the mercy of the judge and say, Judge, be merciful, is the one thing we will not do when God looks upon the earth to see anyone coming to Him for mercy, seeking after Him. He finds no one. Instead, every human being, rather than seeking God in His grace, is trying to suppress the truth, trying to block the truth, trying to deny the truth. Rather than turning to God for help, we will turn anywhere else but to God. We'll turn to false gods. We'll turn to a God of our own imagination. We'll pray to a Jesus who fits more the kind of image of Jesus we like. We'll turn to anything but the true God. The same judge who has the power to cast us into hell is the one who can make us fit for heaven and can mercifully deliver us there. The one person that we are most afraid of is the one that can help us and is the one who opens up his arms to receive us. But we refuse to come to the true God. Isaiah 65, verse 1. Just listen. Isaiah 65, verse 1. God says... I was ready to be sought. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. In other words, he says, I was, I'm here. Just seek me and I will be there. Ask for my mercy and I will give it. Throw yourself upon my grace. I will give you grace. God is so eager to bless. He wants to bless. He desires to bless. And no one comes. How many times in the Bible do we hear God saying, come to me, seek me? Jesus said the same thing to Nicodemus, 
This is just a few verses after John 3.16. Just a few verses after John 3.16. Jesus says, Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. Later, Jesus looked at Jerusalem and he cried out over Jerusalem, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? But you would not. Oh, Jerusalem, I was ready. I was willing. All you had to do was come. But you would not. So it's not just that man is sinful. It's that man refuses to come to God to be saved. What are some implications of this verse? No one seeks for God. What are some implications? I only have one, and we're done. There were many more, but this one took the rest of the sermon. So, One. Apart from God's drawing, no one would be saved. The major implication of the fact that no one seeks for God is that apart from God's drawing, no one would ever be saved. If it's up to people... To come to God on their own free will, no one will ever come. The Holy Spirit must do a work in a person's heart so that they are made willing to come. They must be drawn. It's the only way any person is ever saved. Think about your own salvation. Perhaps you think that the reason you are saved is that you are somehow smarter than others. Somehow you, you, you are wiser than others. Others that you, you know continue not to follow Christ, but for some reason you chose to follow Christ. What was it about you that made you follow Christ when others heard the same gospel message and refused it? Do you pat yourself on the back for that? Do you take credit for that? The Bible says that we can take no credit for that. If you are saved, it is only because the Holy Spirit of God chose to change your heart and draw you. Had He not drawn you in, you would still be as hard-hearted as others. You would still be lost. You would still not be seeking God. If you have come to God, God has done it. If you want more evidence, go with me to a place where it's taught perhaps most clearly. Look at John 6 very quickly. John chapter 6. Will it Jesus teach us this truth? John chapter 6. Begin reading in verse 41. John 6 and verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews were upset 
about something Jesus said, namely Jesus claimed to have come down from heaven, and they don't believe this. They say, isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't this Mary's son? What do you mean he came down from heaven? We don't believe that. Grumbling among themselves, and Jesus says, stop grumbling. This is just evidence that no one can come to me unless the Father draws. Notice that word can. Do you see that word can? If you're willing, put your finger on the word can. It's such an important word. It's a word of ability. If you can do something, you're able to do it. But if no one can do something, then no one has the ability to do it. The teaching of Jesus is that no human being has the ability to come to Jesus apart from the work of the Father drawing. That's how corrupt the human heart is. The human heart has such enmity against God. It so suppresses the truth that left to ourselves, no one can come to God. We're too enslaved. We're too enslaved to sin. Or to use another picture from the Bible, we're too dead in our sin. Right? We could call out to those, those, to those graves at the back of the church and we could stand, I could preach from this pulpit and call to those graves in the cemetery out behind the church and say, Get up! Come! But nobody's going to come because they're dead. In the same way, people by nature are dead in sin. And let you and I preach the gospel to them as much as we want. If God doesn't do a life-giving work, they will never come. Look down at verse 60. Verse 60. Just let Jesus say it again. He said it once. He says it again. Verse 60. When many of His disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in Himself that His disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning that those who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray Him. And He said, This is why I told you that no one can come to Me unless it is granted Him by the Father. Some of Jesus' own followers were, were complaining about these hard teachings of Jesus. And their own minds were wanting to reject what He was saying. Their, their own hearts were wanting to, to react with disbelief. It, we're not just talking about the twelve disciples here. He had a number of followers with Him at this time. And after John 6, they're going to disappear. A lot of the would-be followers of Jesus left after John 6. They would not believe what Jesus was teaching. And Jesus says it's all about the Holy Spirit. He says it's the Holy Spirit that gives life. And He says, this is why I told you, no one can come to Me unless the Father grants it. And so there it is. Church, if you have come to Christ... It is only because God in His sovereign grace has granted it. He does not grant this to everyone. Romans 9.18 says that God has mercy on whomever He wills and He hardens whomever He wills. 
most of humanity will live and die hating God. Most of humanity lives and dies never wanting to come to God, never throwing themselves upon His grace. If you are different, if you have come, it is only because of the grace of our sovereign God. In His great mercy, instead of allowing all humanity to plunge headlong into hell as we deserve, God has chosen to open the eyes of some, to change their hearts, to draw them to Himself, to save them. These people were called Christians. They're called the church. They're called the bride of Christ because they are a gift from the Father to the Son. Hear me clearly. All people everywhere are called to be saved. All people everywhere are to hear the Gospel. The Great Commission says go to everyone. We are to take the Gospel to everyone. But everyone, by nature, will refuse it. But there will be some whom God works upon by His Spirit, whose hearts He will soften, whose minds He will change. And what at first seemed foolishness to them will become wise. And they'll understand and they will seek God. And everyone who seeks God will be found by Him and He will save them. So, do not boast in your own intellect or your own will, but realize that the only thing keeping you out of hell is the sheer sovereign grace of our wise God. Are you not thankful that you are saved? And are you not humbled? Do you not see how many others there are who are less sinful than you whom God has passed over? And yet, you are here. You are loving Christ. You are following Christ. Does that not just bury your pride in the dust? Uh, we're going to go next to John 10. I don't think we really have, have time, but in, in John 10, 1 through 4, there's the, the picture of Jesus as the good shepherd. Jesus knows his sheep. His sheep know him. When he calls them, they come. The point is, every single person whom God has chosen to draw to himself will come. There are none who have the Holy Spirit of God effectually drawing them to salvation who somehow find a way to overpower the Spirit of God and not come. Everyone whom God has determined to draw to himself will come. They know the voice of their Savior. Jesus says to those people before Him, He says, I have other sheep and other tribes, other tongues, other nations. I have other sheep who are not of this fold and they will come. That's how powerful the calling of God is. When He draws, He draws successfully. Salvation is all of grace. Coming to Jesus is all of grace. Could it be that there is someone here this morning who sees their need of Christ? Could it be that there is someone here who has been believing a false gospel? Or someone here who finally is ready on this day to yield themselves to Christ, to submit to Christ, to follow Christ. Could it be that on this Sunday morning, by a supernatural work of the Spirit of God, you genuinely want to seek God? You genuinely want to throw yourself upon His mercy. 
Well, dear friend, if that's you, know this. If you desire to be saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, He will save you. If you are willing to give up your own life and to say, I was such a fool. Jesus is so much wiser than I am. He knows what's right better than I do. He knows what's best for me. He loves me more than I love myself. I'd be dumb not to follow Him. I want to follow Him. If that's you, He will save you. Just run to Him. Run to Him in your heart and say, Jesus, I throw myself upon You. Teach me what it is to really live. He will do so. And then as you begin walking a new life, following Christ in baptism and church membership and beginning to see your life change and become more like His image, you'll be able to look back and say, I know how it happened. It was the work of the Spirit of God. God in His great grace saved my soul. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen? Let's pray. So I would challenge us all now to go to the Father in prayer.